What's up, guys? Morning. Morning. Well, for those who haven't met yet, my name's Riley, and I'm Nick's brother. It's going to be my identity for the weekend. And uh, yeah, it's awesome to be here with you guys. We had a great night last night, and uh, super stoked for today. Um, when I first my my first message I ever spoke ever was at Cap Hill in 2012, I think 2012, and uh, I remember uh, my, my first whole point was wrong. And Justin told me that afterwards. That he's like that whole thing was not right. I don't know why he let me do it again, uh, but Justin, love Justin, and super indebted to him. Today, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about faith in God's future. Last night, we talked about God stirring up our spirit and how that looks a lot like stepping out and embarking on a road trip or like a journey, not knowing everything that's ahead. Well, in order to embark, in order to go, in order to make it to the destination, whatever the Lord has for you, We need faith in God's future. But I'll tell you what makes me nervous. What makes me nervous is tomorrow. Because tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow is after I wake up. It's as my son Atticus says, tomorrow is after nap. He kind of breaks his days up into before nap and after nap. Along with tomorrow comes a lot of unknowns, comes a lot of uncertainty, and with uncertainty comes anxiety. I just don't know what tomorrow brings at all. Uh, A a few months ago, we were doing swim lessons for my kids. My son, Addy, he's five. And we were teaching him how to swim. The swimming instructor was showing him. And he's one of those kids that doesn't like to do anything that takes longer than five seconds. He wants instant results. He's going to have a hard time doing anything with that kind of attitude. I'm trying to work on him with it, work on it with him. Um, So we were trying to teach him how to swim. He's getting really frustrated that he couldn't just learn how to swim in five seconds. So I did what any good dad does. I threw him in the deep end. And uh, no, it wasn't the deep end, but it was like up to here on him if he's on his tippy toes. And it's this pool near, near our church where it's like a, a snake-like river with a current that's kind of forced through it. You know, at the pool, it's got a current that they kind of pump through there. It's a floating thing, so you're supposed to float down it on an inner tube. I made him float down it by himself. You know, and he could kind of float down on his tippy toes. And my goal was to, like, force him to confront that fear, Right. Well, he flipped out. So <laughs> I throw him in there. He floats down and around the corner, and he's screaming. And I'm like, oh, no. I'm not actually nervous. I'm just worried about being judged by other parents. <laughs> so I swim down there, and I get him. And he goes, Dad, what are you doing? Why would you let me go? You're gonna ma- you're, you're gonna, I'm going to drown. You're going to make me drown. And I said, Atticus, I would never let you drown by accident. <laughs> So anyways, I, I, I told him, Addy, you can do it. I know you can do it. But he points to this corner, this kind of bend 
in the little river thing, and he goes, but over there it's deeper because he can't see it. There's this turn. He goes, over there it's deeper. That's where I would drown. And he was pointing to where he couldn't see. Because when we're pointing somewhere where we don't know what's around the corner, that's where the fear lies. When something's around the bend and we haven't yet gone to that place, that's what makes us nervous. Tomorrow is like that. It's around the bend. It's unknown. It's uncertain. And it's no different when we're following Jesus. There's a lot about the future that makes us nervous. You know, next week, next month, next year. How about 10 years from now? How about when our kids enter into high school? How about when they graduate and go to college? How about when we find it to be time to move on or take a new job or whatever the case might be? Along with the future comes the anxiety. Now, Jesus talked about this. Jesus talked about tomorrow. In Matthew six thirty four. he said this, Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I, I read that and I go, Okay, Jesus, like you made tomorrow. Like, it's something for you to say that. You know the future. So what do you have to say to, to people in our condition who, who don't know? How do we get through tomorrow? How do we have faith for tomorrow? Well, the answer, according to Jesus, in the, is in the, very, um, the verse prior to Matthew 6.34, Matthew 6.33. Some of you might know the verse. Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things, the anxiety things, will be added to you. So according to Jesus, the way to have faith through the future is to seek first the Lord. And then everything follows thereafter. Now I I bet, as you look at your tomorrow, I bet it sometimes makes you nervous. I bet that sometimes it brings anxiety. So I'm asking the question today, how can we have faith for our future? Let's turn to Ezra chapter 3. The book of Ezra is like in the middle of your Bible. It's on page 709 of my Bible. Not that that's helpful to you. Turn to Ezra chapter 3 because in the story that we're following, we see God's people who have just now returned home, returned back to the homeland from being in exile. They've settled down in their towns, in their cities, and they've built their houses again, and they're kind of making a life for themselves. But now they're going to start doing the work that God has called them to do, namely to build the temple. This is the job that they've been given by God, to go home, return to Israel, and build the temple. But as we'll see, as they begin to do this, as they begin to step out, things get shaky, and they also need faith for their tomorrow. So let's read. Let's go to uh, Ezra 3, uh, verse 2. Read it with me. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josedach, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it 
as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So, so far we have two characters. Yeshua. Yeshua is the high priest. He's the lead, the spiritual leader of the day. Then you have Zerubbabel. He's sort of the, the main political leader. He's the governor, you could say. And these guys want to start on the work of the Lord. But notice how they start. They don't start with the temple. That's a big, huge project. Rather, they start at the very core. They build the altar. Now, when they're building the altar, that is them building what is most important. They're building the very center of their worship to the Lord. Because according to the law of Moses, the altar was where you would sacrifice things. You would bring some of your best and brightest uh, sheep or goats and bring it to the altar to sacrifice, to give to the Lord as an act of worship. It's really the center, the core of the worship ritual in that day. Now, we don't really understand the idea of sacrifice in, in those terms because, as you can tell, we're not you know, sacrificing and burning animals here, at least not yet. I think that's going to be an activity for free time. Consult Matt. But, uh, but I think that we all understand the idea of sacrificing something for a better future. When you give up what is dear to you to secure a better end result. Maybe you gave up your freedom to go to med school, so then you can enter into the medical field. Maybe you gave up Netflix so that you could learn an instrument. Maybe you gave up on video games so that you could work more hours at work and, and, and so save up for something. We all understand this idea of giving God or, or giving our, our own future what is dear to us so that we can have what's best for us. That's the goal for Israel. That's why they build the altar, because now that they are entering into this, they need to start and do it right. They need to give things up. They need to sacrifice. They need to make the main thing the main thing. And that's the sacrifices. That's why it's so central. They're just barely beginning. They're getting a new start on life. They need to do it right. And so, as we read, it says, as it is written in the law of Moses... They're doing it by the book. They're doing it according to the Torah. This is the way to do it, and they don't want to get it wrong. Now, this is a theme throughout the rest of the chapter, doing it by the book. So let's skip down to verse 8. Okay, skip down to the next paragraph here. In verse 8 it says, Now, in the second year, so this is some time later, after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. So now it says they make a beginning. They've built the sacrificial system. They're starting at the core. They're, they're doing it right. They're, they're doing the main thing first. Now they go, they go to pour the foundation for the temple. Zerubbabel, Yeshua, these two leaders, it says they appoint the Levites to oversee construction because they want to do it according to the book. Now here's the idea. 
This is the main theme here. As they make this beginning, as they construct things, they want to do it according to God's plan. Not their own. They don't have some artiste who wants to self-express, who's got a new idea for things, who wants to draw up a new plan, a new decor plan. They want to build according to God's blueprint. You know, when you do, some of you guys have worked in construction, and you know how easy it is to cut corners in construction, use cheap materials, underbid a project, or just kind of do a shoddy job, and behind the drywall is all sorts of, you, you just kind of leave out the insulation because it saves you some dollars on the project. They do not want to do it that way. They're building according to God's blueprint. He is the architect. This is, this is God's project. This is God's future. Now, here's a case in point. In the verse we just read, notice this. In verse, in verse 8, where it says this, uh, they appointed the Levites. I'm trying to find it here. They appo- okay, yeah. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward. Okay, why are they doing this? Why are they appointing 20-year-old knuckleheads? Any of you guys 20 years old? You guys should not be in charge of building. I know. 11 years ago, no. Do not put me in charge of anything. I don't know why Justin gave me the mic at all. (laughs) Why are they appointing 20-year-olds to lead the construction project? Well, according to the law, according, you can read this in Numbers chapter 8 and, and elsewhere, according to Moses' law, the Levites, they served a term and they were forced into retirement at about age 55. And at that point, they would have to appoint new, young, green, whippersnapper, knuckleheads to step into leadership. And it, that was kind of the whole system. It was like this built-in, always have a fresh fresh crop of leaders always, um, always being raised up. Now think about this. The people of Israel have just gotten back And some of these guys who have just returned, some of these older Levites are 50 years old, 60 years old, 70 years old. Some of them remember the old temple and also worked there. But their tenure, their job was cut short by captivity. They were captured and taken away before they could fulfill their obligations. And now they're coming back and being forced to hand the job to their sons or to people, young guys, anyone other than them. They're too old. And yet, even I, I, admit, I would imagine that would be hard. But instead of demanding an amendment to the law, instead of you know, saying, hey, you know, I didn't get my fair share, or I didn't get a chance, instead of that, they follow God's program. They appoint their replacements. That's because this is God's future, not theirs. This is God's program, not theirs. Now, at the same time, this does create a little bit of a tension between the old and the young, as we will see. Let's skip down to verse 10, read it. And when the, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, in their uniforms, came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. 
and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So with the cement poured, the foundation laid and drying, the entire nation, we see, gathers for a huge ribbon-cutting ceremony. The mayor's there. There's babies being brought out to be kissed. And it's going to be a huge festival. It's going to be a huge worship night featuring the live band, the Sons of Asaph, who actually wrote this song. The song that they sing here in verse 11, For He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. This is Psalm 136. And it says that they sing this responsively. What does that mean? Well, it means when I say hey, you say ho. Hey, ho, hey. If you go back and read Psalm 136, that's how it's written. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And then the crowd says, His steadfast love endures forever. And then they sing again. And then, His steadfast love endures forever. It's this call and response song. So they gather together for this huge concert. They sing Psalm 136 that was on the radio every day as top 40s hit. They want to do this right. They want, to, they want to make a big scene. It says here that they do it according to the directions of David. This is just another example of them following the book. You know, David, the king, he was all about music. Best-selling artist in all of history, Psalm, 1, Psalm 23, most covered song ever written, more than the Beatles. And this guy was popular. And so they gather together for this huge Concert, You know, I get chills reading things like this. Because just imagining living in those days and coming together for this huge festival, way bigger than Coachella, way bigger deal than Justin Bieber leading worship at Coachella. Like, this is a big thing, right? And so I love this stuff because this is what we get to do every week. When we gather as God's people, we worship like this. And I love that we do this every Sunday. I want to zoom in on one phrase in the song where it says, For He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. The word steadfast love is a word that we just sang about. It's the word hesed. And the word hesed is a Hebrew word. It's a very peculiar but very important Hebrew word. And it's translated steadfast love, but as we sang in the song, it's sometimes translated loving kindness or long suffering in other translations. And it literally, it, it, it's the word that is given and reserved and uniquely appropriated to God's love. It's God's sacrificial, consistent, covenant love that is always there and dedicated. For his people. It's never ending. The Jesus Storybook Bible translates this word God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So when they're singing of God's steadfast love, his Hesed, this is them singing of their faith and trust in God's faithful love for them that will never end. So when they step into the future, we see that they might not know exactly what it will be like. They don't have all the answers, but they do have a faithful God. They do not have details, but they have worship. They do not have answers, they have faith. They do not have fortune-telling, they have trust. And they're following the Lord. But at the same time, 
not everyone is singing the same tune. Tensions start to heat up. Continuing in verse 11, read it. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had, been, who had, fir- who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish between the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What begins as this huge, boisterous worship night starts to devolve into a battle of the bands between the minor keys and the major keys, between the, between the bummer emo music of the 90s and the upbeat, somewhat barf-inducing pop music of the 2000s. Nick and I were in a band years ago, and we played a battle of the bands at the Experience Music Project. The EMP Sound Off Battle of the Bands. Pretty, pretty big, actually, big concert. And we made it in. We made it past round one, round two. And we played this competition thing. There's hundreds and hundreds of people there. And so we played like two songs, I believe. And, and then the other bands played two songs. And, and then the crowd would vote on the band that was, was best. And we, we got the crowd, the crowd award, right? Is that right? We got the crowd award. So the crowd loved us. But then, then, when it came time for the judges to actually rule and give their, you know, their decision about who was the best, they said, quote, our band was too good. Seriously, we're too good. Remember that, Nick? Oh, come on. They said that we were too good, meaning too polished. Right? We were too... Neat. The other bands had that Seattle badness. <laughs> and I'm not even joking. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot to tune. Uh, let's go anyways. It's like, yeah, cool. What? They said that we were too good. No joke. We lost that night. But the good thing about our band, if you were there, was Nick. Nick was the highlight of the band because he had grown out his hair to be this humongous afro. And so people wouldn't know, they didn't know our band. Like even after we played the concert, I go, yeah, I just played. They go, oh, which band were you? I'd go, the one with the guy with the afro. <laughs> oh, yeah, you guys are great. It's always Nick with the highlight. Anyways, we lost the Battle of the Bands. The, you see here the competition between the positive and the negative. The young guys, the, the up-and-coming people, the, the new people who came home to Israel, and they're super stoked. They're excited to build the temple. They're like, yes, I don't remember some old temple. I don't, I don't care about any old nostalgic kind of vision of the good old days, the way things used to be. But then you have the negative voice of the old guys that were there. They remember Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was world-renowned. It might have been even the wonders of the world at the time. Like people would travel far and wide. Royalty would come just to see it. 
So they remember how glorious it was. Now it's torn down. It's nothing. And now they're starting from scratch. And these old guys are looking at the borders of the foundation that's just been laid, and they're going, this is smaller. This is not as good. How is it possible that this could be as good as the good old days, the way things used to be? Because, you know, when you're on the outset of the future, when you're on the ground floor of a new venture, it's hard to trust in the Lord at that time. It's hard to know that the future will be as good as the past. Things seem not so good. They're unsure. You're uncertain. And, and so like these old guys, you're kind of wondering. You're weeping. You're, you're asking. You're confused. You're, you're sad about it. You, you just don't know. But at the same time, many are looking forward. Many are stoked for the future. And so soon, you know, soon enough, the joyful shout drowns out the negative, uh, the negative lament. Popular opinion has spoken. So let's sum up the story up to this point. Having come out of exile, set free, God's people return to their homeland, they rebuild, and now they've laid the foundation for the work that God has called them to do. They begin work on what we now call the second temple. And this temple is the temple that Jesus walked through. They've begun working on God's future. Now, uh, Psalm 40 verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He turned and heard my cry. I waited patiently. Like I sat, and I prayed, and I asked and I wondered, and I invited the Lord, and eventually, after some time, God turned and heard my cry. That's what I want to be the theme for this weekend. That we're asking God to stir us up for whatever He has for us. We want Him to to energize us, to give us a new sense of purpose, a new sense of love and community to do what God has called us to do. And we want also the courage to say yes to that. That's what we want over this weekend and tonight. And I think that you know, many of us need faith to do it. We need faith to step out, faith for God's future. And you might be facing an important decision. You might need to make a necessary change in your life. You might have a relationship decision to make. Something's, something's going on. Or, or you might have an opportunity before you and you, you don't know. Should you go? Should you stay? Should you say yes? Should you say no? You need faith for God's tomorrow. So I want to I conclude by asking us a question. I want to ask us this question. What stands in the way of God's future for your life? What stands in the way? You're facing it. You you know you're heading towards it. What is in the way? What's the obstruction? Well, I want to leave us with three answers to this question. What stands in the way of God's future? First, your past. Your past can stand in the way of God's future for two reasons. Either your past was great or your past was not great. And as you look back on your past, you wonder, can God's future be as good as my past? 
And you look back and you have nostalgia and you have the good old days, like the old guys looking back on the, the, the first temple and remembering it and going, oh, it was so beautiful. It was so much bigger and better. There's no way that the future can be as good as that. And sometimes we look back on our past like that with, with nostalgia. And, and the things that were traumatic and headache-inducing and huge regrets and mistakes in our life because of the effect of nostalgia, we can actually think it was great. We can remember the good old days of when I was in college and when I did all that and when I was back then and it was so fun. And if we were to really go back, we'd need to break up with that person again, say sorry for that decision again. But nostalgia can trick us. But then there's this other side of it where as you remember your past, things can be so bad, so traumatic, so ridden with mistakes and regrets that you wonder if God can be even faithful to you at all. And so you wonder, is this just going to be more of the same because of my past? Well, we can get past our past with Jesus Because just as the Jews needed to be freed from their past, freed from exile, set free to go home and to do what God has called them to do, so we need to be freed from our past. And we can be. Because of the cross. We can be set free, cleansed, washed, and forgiven of our guilt and our shame and our mistakes and our regrets, our sins. Those things are gone. Jesus has dealt with your past. Jesus has secured a better future. Jesus is present in your present. No past is as good as life with Jesus. No past is bad enough that Jesus cannot deal with it, forgive you, wash you, and bring you into a better future. Nostalgia cannot compete with the amazing future that God secured for you on the cross. Second, the second thing that can stand in the way of God's future for you is your present. Your present offers too many pleasures or worries to even think about God's future. So many distractions, so many options, so much to do, so much to worry about. And as we'll discover throughout the story tonight, fear, discouragement, temptation constantly pulls at God's people, even as they're doing the right thing, even as they build and finish building God's temple. Like, it's always there. Your present is always a distraction from God's future. The life we live, we, you know, we think this. The life I live is full to the brim already. I, I don't have any bandwidth for what God has for me. There's no room for God's plan. The answer to this is to sacrifice your present on the altar. God's people built an altar for the purpose of making sure that their present reality, their present comfort, everything that they had in the present did not get in the way. They gave up what was dear to them so they could have what was best for them. We need to do the same. Give up what is dear to you 
your time, your effort, your resources, your relationships, whatever stands in the way, give it up, put it on the sacrifice. As Romans 12 says, our whole bodies, our whole existence is a living sacrifice. Give it up, put it there, let it burn so that you can have what's best for you. Now, I know I realize that this is not easy. It's not easy to say, oh, give up what's dear to you. Eh, you know, it's no big deal. Like that one song that we used to sing back in the day, this is no sacrifice. Here's my life. What? Yes, it's a sacrifice. The Bible says that. I'm not singing that garbage song. But it doesn't matter what you're going through. Here's what we can be sure of. Jesus' destiny is always better than your dilemma. Jesus' future is always better than what's in your wallet. Jesus' plan for you is much greater than, than whatever plan you have for yourself. Whatever plan is unfolding in your own life in the present. You can't have anything without sacrifice. I mean, we know this. Those of us who've been to college, who have a career, or who have kids, we gladly give up what is dear to us for our own plans. But Jesus' plan is even greater. Which leads me to the third point. What stands in the way of God's future? Your future. Your future can eclipse God's future. Stands in the way of it. Why? Because the future plans that we make for ourselves are a lot different than the future plans God makes for us. You know, the old guys and, and many of the Jews here, they had an idea of how the future would play out. But as they looked around, they saw, wow, the way God worked this thing out is a lot different than I anticipated. God's plan was a lot different. I don't like it. Why is it that we buy into our own plans rather than God's plans? Well, it's two reasons. One, our plans are more certain. We know the details of them. I mean, sometimes they're literally on an Excel spreadsheet in front of us. Some of us are planners. If you would raise your hand hypothetically to that, uh, that would be evidence of people who are disappointed every day of their lives. <laughs> Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> we, we like our plans because they're certain. We know the details. We wrote them. We also like, the, uh, we like our plans because our plans are all about us. And we're the main character in our own stories. But, but God's plan, in God's plan, you are not the main character. <laughs> our plans are more about us, but God's plans are more about Him. And sometimes we ourselves are the sacrifice so that God can be the main character of His story. And we're giving up a lot and, we're, and it's uncertain. We don't know. Whether we're not the writers. We, it's not, we, don't, we don't have access to God's Google Drive, right? Where He's got it all laid out. And so it makes us nervous. So we can take a lesson from the Jews here. Instead of demanding answers, they worshipped. Instead of trying to figure out the details, they had devotion. Instead of getting a fortune-telling for their future, they had faith. 
I love how God's people here do what's most important. They worship Him. They know that they don't have the answers, but they have a God they can trust. And they walk with Him. Now we're excited, and we can be excited, about the future, not because it's better than the past. So we shouldn't make the mistake of, of thinking like, oh, those old guys... Old people are so lame. They think the good old days or the Jesus movement or God used to move back then and all these young people are lame and dumb and they're shallow and they don't care and they don't have a good attention span. Like, we, we shouldn't have that kind of dichotomy between the past and the, and the future. Right? We're excited. We can be excited about God's future not because we're claiming it's going to be better than the past, but because that's the only way to go. And because God is still at work. So we, don't, we don't pridefully say, you know, our plans are better. You know, the old people, they don't understand. Or, or the, my parents or, the, or, or whoever's saying this or whoever's living in the past, they're lame. And, and everything ahead of us is going to be great in comparison. We don't say that. No, the future is exciting because God is still moving. And He always will be. So we take a clue from God's people. I want to close with this. Matt, can you come up here for a second? (laughs) Sure. And we have to go to the bathroom for that. Okay. This ruler, can you hold that for me? This is how we plan our future. Okay, right here is our life. You're born here. You die here. You get married here. Graduate college here. A friend dies here. You have your grandkids here. You retire here. Maybe if we are, maybe if we're planners enough, maybe people like Ryan, like maybe people who can really chart out life can start to see, okay, I'm going to plan my life and I'm going to have um, my grandkids and their life here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set aside some, some inheritance for my kids here. And they'll have enough for their grandkids here. My grandkids get to go to college here. And we're planning out multiple generations ahead of us. But even the best planners among us, that's all we can do. That's as far as our vision can go. But when we trust in the Lord, this is what we see. Can you hold this? When we trust and have faith in God's future... This is how God sees things. Far greater than we could ever see. He sees into eternity. And so as we follow Him, we're making decisions that are not just good for our kids and grandkids. That are not just good for America. They're good for heaven. These are decisions that are not just, let's leave the world a better place for our our great-grandchildren. We're we're wanting to leave the, the world a better place for all people to come. And into eternity. Because here's the thing. I don't know how this works. Because here's the thing. In the middle of our plans, things don't... Thanks, Matt. Let's all give Matt a hand. Nice job, dude. And Psalm 17 says this. The wicked have their portion in this life and they leave an inheritance to their kids. 
And then it goes on to describe the man of righteousness, the person who trusts in the Lord, who has an eternal inheritance. We want this eternal perspective. We want God's future. So here's our prayer for this morning. I just want to lead us in this simple prayer before we go. Let's all stand together and I want to just lead us in this. I'm going to conclude each message with this just really simple one-liner prayer. Feel free to take it with you, write it down, or pray it with each other, or whatever the case might be. But here's the prayer. Let's all just take a posture of prayer today and you know, close our eyes, bow our heads. And here's the prayer. Dear God, give me faith for your future. Amen. If you're here and you're facing tomorrow and with tomorrow, it's uncertainty. Or if you're here and in your past, present, or your future are standing in the way and you know that and you want to, you want to entrust in God's future, I want to encourage you to be praying and asking God, waiting on the Lord, and in time He will indeed turn and hear your cry. Amen. Can you do a-